It's Zhang Hu Hustle. Hello and welcome to Zhang Hu Hustle. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Farmer. And I'm here with my co-host, Eli Kurtz. Today we're talking about setting dramatic stakes through the lens of the movie Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And oh, are we excited. Oh, and nervous, I think it's fair to say. Uh, I think so. <laughs> I think, you know, we're on our fourth episode and we're tackling what I think is arguably the best Wuxia movie. I think so. Uh, not only the best Wuxia movie, but one of the best movies, period, of all time. Oh, absolutely. And one that just really translates well. Mm-hmm. Um between the between the cultures, oh man, uh, yeah, uh, and it just the acting in it is phenomenal. The Wushan it is phenomenal. The choreography is phenomenal. I mean, we get everything in this movie. Yeah, the soundtrack, even Yo Yo Ma and Tandun oh, chilling Yo out. Tandun. Oh man, God, uh, yeah. All right, so I'm sure that we've all seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but if you're like me, it had actually been a while since I had seen it. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the details had gotten a little fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Crouching Tiger came out in 2000. It was directed by Ang Lee. It was choreographed by Yuan Wu Ping and the music by Tan Dun and Yo-Yo Ma, like we said before. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was based on a book by Wang Dulu. uh, And then some of the other writers were Wang Hui Ling, James Seamus, and Sai Kuo Jung. And it has an unbelievable cast. Chao Yun-Fat is Li Mu Bai. Mm -hmm. Michelle Yeoh is Shulian, mm-hmm. Zhang Ziyi is Jen, and Chang Chen. Uh, who was Chang Chen? Dark Cloud. Oh, Dark Cloud. Yeah. That's right. Um, and Cheng Pei Pei, I think, is uh, is um, Jade Fox. That's right. Yeah, she is too. Um, and about the book that it was adapted from, it's actually part of a series of five books. And uh, the cool thing about it, uh, I'll let you kind of give a, an overview of the story, but the larger cycle of the novels is interesting because it traces the story of the Zhang Hu through, I think, five different generations of people. And so it starts off with Li Mubai's like, dad uh, going through his adventures. And then it traces the story. Like You get introduced to Li Mubai eventually, and then he takes the reins. Then you get introduced to this new generation in the form of Jen Lo, or Jen Yu, sorry. And then you get introduced to yet a new generation which is in the uh uh passable no i don't think it's passable i like the sequel just fine but it's definitely not as good as this movie (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i i i get it i mean this movie is making a sequel to this movie is is a fair bit of folly yeah uh, i think Uh, i don't think you can do better uh with no, the same no, I think setting. you could maybe <laughs> cast it backwards and do a prequel. I think that would maybe make the most sense. But mm-hmm. uh, Well, and originally, I know in the late 2000s, whenever they were first talking about doing a follow-up movie, they were looking into doing a prequel, and it was going to be mm-hmm. the story of how Limu Bai and Yushu Lian met. Oh, oh, to go back in time and throw money at people. Yeah, right. That would be great. Yeah. All right. So the plot uh, of of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is it's a fairly sort of naughty affair. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that complicated, but it, it does have some twists and turns to it. But it starts out with the news that Li Mubai, played by Chai Yun-Fat, has left the mountain where he was meditating, and he has come down off of the mountain to give up his warrior ways. And in doing that, he gives up 
he he gives his sword, the Green Destiny, to Sir Tay, who is a a government official and a friend to him and Shulian, uh, played by Michelle Yeoh. Now, Shulian uh, and Li Mubai have a deep and unacted upon love for each other. And in the movie, it's this very tense, very exciting uh, tension that goes on in all of these scenes for each other. And everyone knows that they're in love, love with each other, too, which is which is also amazing. Yeah. Now they get to the court of of Certe and they meet the third main character in this, which is Jen. And she is a young noblewoman and she is about to get married and, you know, she doesn't seem super thrilled about that. She's she's quite young. Yeah. Uh, she's lovely. This is Yi Zhang. And she has a whole bundle of secrets on her own. So this is really where the plot kicks off. There's a bunch of stuff before this with Shulian and Li, and Li Mubai and uh, them having sort of tender, intense scenes with each other. But when... Jen steals the green destiny in disguise. This is really where the movie kicks off. Mm -hmm. So she steals it. Her motivations at first are unclear. Um, but part of the reason, the other part of the reason that Lee Mubai has come off of the mountain is that he needs to avenge his master. His master was killed by an assassin named Jade Fox many years ago, and he has yet to avenge the death of his master. So he's coming down to do that. Then the Green Destiny goes away. Then Jade Fox turns up. And it turns out that Jen is the apprentice to Jade Fox. And all kinds of more complications ensue. There's other people investigating Jade Fox coming in. But the main quadrant of people is Li Mubai, Shulian, Jen, and Jade Fox. Mm -hmm. And this, they, they, play off in pairs and in triangles through the whole movie where Jen is caught between the Jung Hu world and the noble world. And she can't, uh, even though she possesses great martial skills and in fact, later greater martial skills than her master, Jade Fox, she can't, uh, settle in one place or the other. She even has the opportunity to run away with a, a bandit named Lo. I told you there's a lot in this movie. So much. <laughs> and uh, and then Lee Mubai recognizes her abilities and wants to take her on as an apprentice uh, instead of just retiring completely. And she rejects him. There ends up she ends up stealing the green destiny for good as part of that rejection. Oh my gosh, there's so much. So much. <laughs> and then so to to tie it back at the end, uh, she. Jade Fox, Li Mubai, and Shulian all have a big conflict at the end where Li Mubai finally unleashes his true powers with the Green Destiny mm -hmm. against Jade Fox, mm -hmm. completes his quest, and, but dies in the end. Yeah. And adorably inept Master Bo is there to watch that final conflict. <laughs> Master Bo is, is, the, is the us character. He is. He's, he's, the, he's the person at our scale. 
when when everybody else is flying around he is stuck firmly on the ground and he has some great comic comic moments yeah the first time i saw him i saw that thing that was like a staff nunchuck and i was like oh this is cool how's this guy gonna be and then it turns out the answer is uh he's middling at best (laughs) he's mainly gonna hit himself with it yeah with that flail (laughs) yeah um Wait till we get to uh, 36th Chamber and you see the triple-headed flail uh, that uh, Gordon Liu wields. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's the best. All right. It's the best. But back to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. So there's so much. We'll go over, like, bits and scenes in this. Mm -hmm. But that's sort of the the arc of the plot. It's really the stories about Jen. Mm Mm-hmm. And her her being tugged between this noble world that she doesn't actually want to be in being tugged to the sort of evil Jung Hyu side with Jade Fox and then the noble Jung Hyu side with uh, Lee Mubai and even having more of a sisterly uh, familial connection with Shu Lien. So she's being pulled in all of these directions. And every time she gets pulled in a direction, terrible things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, we're, we're talking about this movie mostly in the context of setting the stakes, like we said at the beginning. Uh, and I think that will help to focus our conversation because honestly, I think we could have an entire podcast series just about this movie, but yeah. So, uh, help us give us a little bit about what stakes are in a story. Sure. Yeah. Stakes. When we're talking about stakes, we're talking about, what is at risk in the scenes, but the most important thing to think about stakes, you know, stakes are like table stakes or they are, you know, what, what you will bet to get what you want, right? That's the easiest way to think about it. But in narrative terms and in gaming terms, stakes are a question. Will you get what you want and how much will you pay for that? Mm -hmm. Now, what answers that is the story in, in games. When we get to that section, there are often mechanics that, that influence that. But in this one, we say, okay, well, what will happen when Limu Bai comes off of the mountain to give up his warrior ways? Mm-hmm. What will happen to his personal life when that happens? What will happen to the Jung Hu when that happens? And, and we can keep breaking these stakes down. They can keep, they can get very large like that, or they can come down to individual characters or even individual scenes. And they are best when two characters have opposing stakes, or at least uh, asynchronous stakes. They want different things out of the scene. Mm -hmm. So they might not be able to get everything that they want. Mm -hmm. So this movie has, because it has these characters that are these huge scale, these stakes are also huge. So let's, maybe go through them. Let's maybe start at the character level and dig through these and see what each character wants. And then we can see how that applies uh, over the whole story and seeing some of the scenes we can kind of pick apart and see what they're doing there. And then of course, over the whole story. And then when we're done with that, we can start applying it to tabletop gaming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you said, there are four main characters. We have Li Mubai, Yushu Lian, Yu Jen, Jade Fox, and then I would include a fifth character who's kind of a deuteragonist, um, Dark Cloud, Low, the guy out in the desert, that long, interminable desert scene. The, the one weak part of the film. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah. if there is a weak part, it's that I don't have the patience to stay in the desert for as long as they're in the desert. <laughs> but these five characters form the dramatic backbone of this movie. And the way that they 
collide with each other and the way that they resolve their conflicts is really the story of the film. Uh, I'll start with Limu Bai. He's one of my favorite characters of all time. I, uh, I just, I love everything about him. And the question at the beginning is simple. He has chosen to give up enlightenment. The first thing he says to Shulian is that he was meditating and he, something went wrong and he decided to not meditate anymore. And he's giving up his warrior life. He's doing it, it's implied heavily, because in this movie, everything is only ever implied, uh, that he's giving it up because he and Shulian have a long, uh, suppressed romantic history together. And he wants to no longer suppress that. He wants to be with her and he's giving up his warrior's life so that they will not be insulting the martial memory of their of their shared battle brother from the past. And that's what he decides to do. But then when the sword gets delivered, he finds out, oh wait, Jade Fox is still around and I never avenged my master's death by killing her. And so the question becomes, will, he's given up enlightenment, but will he do it for revenge or will he do it for love? And those are huge stakes. You would think that love would be an easy choice. And I think through a Western lens, you might be right. But in this culture where everything is about what is appropriate and being deferent and, and, and Confucius says that when a parent dies, the child should not change the order of the household for three years afterward in, in deference to the parent. It's important that they honor the memory of this fallen brother of theirs, right? And so it really becomes a, a tense question of which one does he value higher, the, his, his master and his battle brother or this woman that he's loved for his entire life? And then it gets complicated even more. Also, he has his his master to mm -hmm. think about. Even though his master is dead, mm -hmm. he still owes his master a debt for not only for the instruction, but also to kill the person that, that, that murdered his master. Yeah, not only right? murdered that's his a debt, master. That's a debt that he has to pay. That that he that he's been ignoring, mm -hmm. and not only does it not only did this woman murder his master, but she also stole the secret scrolls of the temple. Uh, so it's like killing his master is enough to merit her death, but then also plundering the temple. Oh man, it's over. She's got to die, right? Well, and also he owes the Wudan, mm -hmm. right? He needs to get. He needs to get this knowledge back. You know, if these scrolls can can come back, mm -hmm. he also needs to avenge the Mudan. Mm -hmm. So it's it's there's there's layers here of of things that he owes, and you can see when he talks about his enlightenment that he he says he enters this this space that there's just nothing but sorrow. Mm -hmm. Like he did, he, he's not gonna he can't make it to enlightenment, and it's uh, he, he's got all of these things holding him to the world. And the big one is his love for Yushulian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's tough, but it's powerful. Uh, I love it. And speaking of Shulian, uh, she's a really interesting character in this movie because I think she is so... Uh, I don't know if I would say willingly, but she resolutely chooses at all moments to be as appropriate and deferent as possible. She says, you know, whenever Limu Bai shows up and starts grilling her about like, oh, the sword's gone. What's going on here? She says, you know, my goal was to get the sword back with the fewest number of people hurt. That's why I haven't done much on the surface, because this is a thorny situation. And I there are a lot of people whose reputations are at stake here and we need to handle this carefully. 
she's she's that character she's that character and she's kind of that person that you know that is that always does the thing for someone else Mm -hmm. yeah and she never does it for herself very self-sacrificing so it's she's very self-sacrificing so you know will she take what she wants is is almost more of her stake Mm -hmm. you know her character stake over the whole story Mm -hmm. you know will will she will she do that in spite of the duty that she has to 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 fulfill because she's supposed to yeah she's supposed to get this sword back you know mm-hmm. and the, the the only and the only reason that it's her that needs to get this sword back is that because she's the the one that has the ability to go and get it back well like you said also she's not a monk she owns a security company and Lee Mubai brought this sword to her because you know, they're so close, but I think it's not a mistake that he brought it to a security company to be delivered to the capital city. And, and so her duty is the safe passage of this sword from Limubai to Belayer, or Sir T is his actual name. Belayer is what they call him all throughout the movie, which had stumped me for 17 years. And then I just found out today that it's an honorific. Bella is an honorific of his imperial title. And then Ye is a Chinese word that means uncle. It's a it's a deferential term for somebody who's a couple generations older than you that you care about a lot, right? I was stumped. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was stumped about this this entire time, but Bellier makes a whole lot more sense now to me because I was I always used to watch the uh, the subtitled version, and I was like, that is not how you spell Bellier. That's Sir T. What are they? What's the problem? <laughs> but anyway, I'm digressing. So that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> You're 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 giving good knowledge to the people that are going to go back and list, uh, rewatch the movie. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so Shulian, like you said, she's self-sacrificing, and you see it time and time again. At first, she just wants to get the sword back without hurting anybody. Then Li Mubai shows up, and they figure out that Jen is the woman who stole the sword. And Li Mubai is like, you know, I think I'm going to train her. And Shulian clearly isn't totally on board with the idea. But she's like, okay, well, he's decided to do this. How can I best support him in this task? And she has a relationship with Jen started already. So she tries to like guide Jen from the inside, so to speak. And it's just amazing to see the trapeze act that she conducts trying to make everybody happy. Yeah. And I, I think I think we see the results of that, that that's the kind of person that makes it out of the situation with nothing that they wanted, mm-hmm. right? Because they never, they never went for it. Michelle Yeoh's performance is so subtle and so amazing mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, and it's just so loving and sad and tough and all of these things. It's really amazing. Mm-hmm. And to see it all fall away, all of her, all of her uh, niceties and all of her subtlety, just melt at the very end is uh, it breaks my heart every time I see it. And mm-hmm. her final words, you know, it's, it's the advice that she should have followed all along, which is whatever path you take in life, be true to yourself. And it's just, it kills me. She's cause it, it, I'm sure she feels like her life has ended, you know? Oh yeah. It, yeah, it has. I mean, she's lost her fiance and then her true love after that. Mm-hmm. And she's left with with nothing, mm-hmm. and yuff, yeah, all, be, all because of this stupid sword, the, right, right. This this object. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the person that stole the object, uh, Eugene. Eugene, dirty little. Brat. And 
huge event. <laughs> it's it's hard because she's she's the main character. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you if you when you watch the movie, it, it's clearly focused on her, mm-hmm. and she has a lot of things going on. She's a young noblewoman that dreams of not being a noblewoman that is is straining against the constraints that that this society puts on her and she she's obsessed with the jung hu mm-hmm. she's read all the romance so much so <laughs> yeah and so much so that that she has it's hard to say whether she allowed herself because she was just a little girl but mm-hmm. she got taken in by jade fox in disguise as her governess and uh was trained in in martial arts and you know doing all of that that evil that evil stuff that that jade fox is doing yeah and because jade fox has a kind of a long-term plan Mm -hmm. right her 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 role is to is to destabilize right she went after lee mubai's master and stole the 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 Wudan scrolls, and and now she's got her apprentice placed to get married into this court, where she can wreak all kinds of havoc and take revenge. I think against men mostly, so you can't blame her entirely. But um, I was going to say I was I was kind of well. We're not talking about Jade Fox yet. We'll get to that in a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so uh, so you, Jen. Uh, so she's got so she's got these two things this this Jung Hu side and she's got this this noble side and then she has a secret love affair uh, mm-hmm. which neither, neither you or I care for that much but it is part of the story and yeah. so she has to choose she has to choose whether she wants to even be, choose between these these two things between the Jung Hu and the nobility she can go off and then she can be part of a different culture of Jung Hu you know out in the deserts you know, and so she's got a lot, she's got a lot pulling on her and she is a passionate person. Mm-hmm. And so um, is, she, is she going to learn to rule her passions or are they going to destroy her? And we see what happens, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's such a thing. This story that she follows is a real coming of age story and it's a cautionary tale too. Uh, it's a it's a cautionary tale about making the wrong choices when you're when you're coming of age, uh, but you kind of can't blame her for it the whole time because she is passionate. There's no doubt about it, and she's willful and impulsive, and she doesn't really know the lay of the land before she strikes out into it. But over and over again, people are telling her like chill out, you know, uh, every time she gets the sword, people are like, you'd be nothing without it, you know? And how do you take that? (laughs) Right. right. How do you, how, how do you surpass your master by a lot Mm -hmm. and, and keep it hidden away this whole time and have these incredible skills that you can't share with anybody. And then you find this weapon and you find this opportunity to go out and live the life of freedom that you've always wanted. And then as soon as you get it, people are like, you're, trash without that you might as well just give it up now and go back to being a a, a content little married woman you know it's such a slap in the face every time somebody tries to stop her from doing what is objectively bad stuff well and then so she rejects Lee Mubai when he says look you need training you know Mm -hmm. you're 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 good right now Mm -hmm. but you don't know like you don't know what you know like you have all of these martial skills but you don't have the wisdom 
to apply them and you don't have the true power that comes from the internal wisdom and the force that that, mm-hmm. that, that gives. And all she hears is, oh, well, there's just going to be one more person who's going to tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah. And- uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie is Limu Bai after that little exchange they have where he gives her her first lesson. And he says, I can teach you to use the green destiny, but first you have to learn to hold it in stillness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's such a cool line to me. Like you have to be at peace with the weapon and the life that it will give you before you can truly master it. And she needs to learn how to be still because mm-hmm. she's constantly yeah. moving in the movie. Oh yeah. Never, never a dull moment with her. Should we talk about her quote unquote master? Yeah. Jade Fox. So Jade Fox, she's, I, I found her to be a little bit of a sympathetic character this time I watched the movie. Oh, I do too. Um, this yeah. is, this is the kind of movie that I watch probably once a year, bare minimum. I just love it so much. And I find new stuff about it every time. And, you know, so Lee Mubai is talking to Shulian and he's like, I think I'm going to train her in Wudan. And Shulian is like, wait a second, women don't train at Wudan. And then he just kind of sidesteps. He's like, I think I'll start with these things or whatever. And, and that's almost a throwaway line until you get to Jade Fox. And, and she's talking about like, yeah, I killed your master. I killed him because I was good enough to sleep with him, but not to be taught by him. And what kind of a slap in the face is that? So yeah, I killed him and I stole his journals and I'm going to teach myself how to do this. And I really understand that impulse. <laughs> oh, right, right. And and for if Lee Mubai says it's okay to teach Jen the secrets of the Wudan, then, then they'll do it, right? But yeah. But Jade Fox wasn't, you know, wasn't anything. She was just... She was just the master's, you know, fling or whatever. Right. And it really casts, it makes you wonder about Lee Mubai's master. Oh, yeah. Right. And Lee Mubai, for that matter. Right. And it's it's one of those things that the the teacher-student relationship in Asian cultures is much different than it is here. Mm-hmm. And it's very, uh, it's very loyal. And it's there's a lot of you know, gratitude and deference and duty that you owe your teacher. And, you know, what I, w- I would be curious to see if like this conflict had gone further, like here's a stake that I would set on a story. If I had these characters and I was remixing this story, like mm-hmm. what, what would, what is, what's Limu Bai's relationship to his master after having found out about Jade Fox? Oh yeah. You know? So you're saying, whether the master is alive or not, how does Limu Bai's estimation of his master change after he realizes that he slept with this woman and then wouldn't teach her or whatever? Right. And then the other thing was that at the beginning, he says, I reached a place that my master never told me about when he was meditating. And it's like, oh, maybe the master doesn't know everything. Yeah. You know, and it's, yeah. it's there's there's some cracks there and it doesn't really get explored. But like I said, mm-hmm. if I was remixing the story, like that's an aspect that you could go down. And you could you could explore what would happen to Li Mubai if his faith in his master was damaged. Yeah. And you know what? So you just said that in the very beginning, Li Mubai said, I reached a point that my master had never told me about in my meditation training. And I just connected that with the scene between Jen and Jade Fox whenever right before Jade Fox is cast out of the household because Jade Fox is going through and, and she kind of gives her defining character quote when she's trying to tempt Jen to come away with her and live this wild vagrant life as a, as a Shah in, in the down and dirty world of Zhang Hu. And she says, 
yeah, you know what? We're going to strike out on our own and we're going to kill anybody who gets our way in our way. That's exciting, isn't it? Kill or be killed. It's the way of the Jiang Hu. And that's really, that's that line is exactly her character motivation. She says, I, this place, you either kill people or you are killed. And that's exciting. That's what I get up for in the morning, you know? Right. And you can um, see how a, a, a young person would be drawn in by like, I'm going to give you this exciting life. Yeah. But to connect it to Limu Bai, uh, Jen quickly demonstrates her superiority over Jade Fox in that scene. And there's a real moment where Jade Fox is like, I suspected you were better than me, but it hurts that you kept this from me for so long. And Jen responds with something like, can you even imagine what it's like to be a little girl and to be growing in power, but to have to hide it from my master because she's jealous. Like, can you, can you imagine how lonely I was in that moment? And by the same token, Lee Mubai found all of a sudden, Oh, I've definitely surpassed my master during his meditation training. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least, or at least it's, it's different for me than it, than what he said it was going to be. And so, yeah. you know, those, those cracks widen. Yeah. So I, I just, I think that that would be, that would be an interesting thing to play with stakes wise. And then I'm going to let, yeah. let that thread play out. Yeah. In our crouching tiger fanfic, that's what we'll be exploring. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so to sum up Jade Fox, uh, her, her stakes are, will she be able to pollute Jen? and wreak her revenge on Li Mubai in the form of tearing up the world of Zhang Hu. And we see what comes to her as well. You know, I think it's safe to say that she does pollute Jen and she kind of gets her revenge on Li Mubai. She too. does. Yeah. I guess she kind of, I guess she kind of pollutes Jen and she kind of gets her revenge. So it's a, it's an ambiguous victory for her. She pollutes Jen long enough that the, the resolution that, that Jen would want or that Lee Mubai would want doesn't come to pass. Mm -hmm. So I think in that, in that way she's successful, but she doesn't, she doesn't pollute Jen to go on and live this double life as a noble Mm -hmm. and an evil Jung Hu, you know, assassin thief and, and, you know, disrupt society that way. Right. And I think the hardest part of Jade Fox's entire story is her own loneliness mm-hmm. uh, in the same sense that Jen surpassed her and left her in the dirt of her training. Uh, and in the same sense that Lee Mubai's master didn't even bother to train Jade Fox. Uh, Jade Fox finds herself in a situation where she's lost every connection she's had. She's lost all of her standing. All she has is her meager powers. And the person that she cared most about in the world turned into a person who betrayed her and then led to her death. Ah, uh, oh, man. I I just, I'm so sympathetic for all of these characters. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what makes it so great is that they're all, they all have such well-developed intentions. Yeah. That they can't all get what they want. And, mm-hmm. you know, the way, you know, I was, we were sort of joking about fan fiction and that sort of thing, but you can see if you have these these characters and you put them together in in different ways that they mm-hmm. they can spin out different stories uh and that's the power mm-hmm. of stakes right i mean that's mm-hmm. that's that's what we're talking about here so if one character gets more of what they want 
Be- because in, if if you're really playing stakes like you mean it, nobody gets everything that they want all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time there's and if they do, it's at the cost of someone else. Yeah, it co- or it costs a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like yes, you you may have everything that you want, but the price that you're going to pay may not be worth it. So these these stakes are really what like drive this this story ahead and you you can you can take all of these and you can remix them and you can put them together in interesting ways and you can see how the story would maybe not come out completely differently every time but mm-hmm. it would spin out in new and interesting ways you know we're still constrained a little bit by genre and by the characters and their abilities and that sort of thing but we can really see that stakes are the things that like drive this action forward and then create the consequences that ripple out later. Mm -hmm. The stakes establish the garden of forking paths. And then as we tell the story, we find out which specific path we take within that wider garden. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then, so finally, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on dark cloud, but he's an interesting character, I think, because in all the movies we've watched so far, the Zhang Hu that we've seen and the Shah that we've seen are a part of settled life. You know, they're they're in the cities. They're they spend a lot of their time in tea houses and courtyards and that sort of thing. Whereas Dark Cloud is way out in the western provinces of China, uh, and he's got his own gang. He's doing pretty well for himself out there, and he raids Jen's family caravan, steals her precious comb. And uh, she chases after him. And that's that's where that's really the seed that is planted that starts all of this uh, is that she falls in love with him and she can't let go. And while they're out and about, he's talking about his life out there in, in the, the wild desert Zhang Hu. And he says out here, gangs are the only way to survive. They, they become like a family because there's nothing out here. Uh, nobody has anything and we have to fight to be able to get anything we want. Um, and then skipping over most of their desert sidetrack, because like we said, not our favorite part of the movie. <laughs> I mean, it's it's lovely they, uh, and it's romantic and, and that sort of thing. I mean, it's a little questionable yeah. in certain parts, but it's a uh, um, it is like an effective scene in that that it brings out a lot of emotion and you get to see her not just have a an awakening in terms of of like her responsibilities and her power is growing as she becomes more of an adult, but you also see her mm-hmm. find love and have a sexual awakening and all of that stuff. So it's very important, like on a story level, uh, we just spends, uh, we think just a little too much time with it. Yeah. I would say, I mean, I think that section is 30 or 40 minutes long or something. Yeah. And a two hour long 20. movie. Yeah. It's, it's pretty long. Yeah. It's just, it, it's so much sidetracking anyway. So, after that, uh, it's literally after the flashback ends, Dark Cloud is talking to Jen and he's like, what they said just before they parted in this flashback, uh, he said to her, I'm I'm giving up my outlaw ways. I'm going to go make a name for myself and then I can be with you and it can be legitimate and, and we'll be happy together. And then cue end of flashback back to the present time. And he says, I tried to make a life for myself, but everywhere I went, someone recognized me. I, I couldn't escape my gang past and i i just want you to run away with me and we can go back to that life even if we can't have a better life uh in the future we can at least go back to the one we had and uh that's tough too you know i mean somebody somebody making youthful mistakes and then having to deal with them it, after he wants to reform and become better it's the same 
central conflict that that Eugen has that she mm-hmm. is a noble and wherever she goes she she is you know recognized as such or she like that could happen right i mean that's part of the mm-hmm. reason why she and dark cloud got together in the first place was that there's a noble caravan and she was in it and mm-hmm. that happens and then that's part of the reason why Shulian doesn't reveal her true identities because it would create a huge scandal because she's a noble because she got recognized. And then later when she goes out, she tries to strike out on her own. She can't stop being recognized. It's like compulsive. Mm-hmm. You know, she can't just sit and have a meal, right? She's got to show off. Mm-hmm. And well, and I mean, she made her own bed a little bit on that one because really what, what's happening is everybody's recognizing the green destiny, uh, either right. her arrogance or the green destiny. Right. But, but I think it's, it's dark clouds, way of, of saying it was I tried to do this thing like I was willing to give it all up but I can't and she's mm-hmm. like I want to give it all up but I can't mm-hmm. so it's it's uh there's there's kind of an interesting parallel there and it's it's why their relationship is is doomed uh mm-hmm. to a certain extent yeah and it it you you hold out hope until the final scene of the movie you know I mean dark cloud tried to reform himself it didn't work uh, Jen pushed him away. He interrupted her wedding ceremony to try and convince her one last time to come away with him. And then he runs into Li Mubai and Shulian and they're like, well, let's see what we can do about this. Go to Wudan and wait. And so he has all this trust and hope. And then finally Jen shows up, but she's a shell. Mm-hmm. You know, she's just been completely hollowed out by the choices she's made. And uh, even then he holds on and he's like, let's, let's go back to the desert. And then she just leaves him. It's so heartbreaking right it's 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 crushing you know when when she says she wants that wish that he talked about earlier that Mm -hmm. oh this 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 man jumped off the mountain because his family was sick and they say that if you do that then that like your your wish will be granted and yeah if only you trust if you have perfect trust then your dreams will come true right and it's it's a little ambiguous the ending um Mm -hmm. but I think that she wishes it would go away and like she gets her wish, Mm -hmm. but not in the magical way. Yeah. Well, and according to the sequel, both the movie and the book, she does survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she, she goes out to the desert and she's actually pregnant with his child. Uh, It's a son Mm -hmm. and she gives birth to him. And then the child is swapped somehow. I don't know, but she ends up raising a girl and, uh, the boy and the girl are the the two love interests in the sequel. Got it. Got it. But in the yeah. if we just take the movie as the text, mm-hmm. it is ambiguous, right? Like we ignore yeah, the, the novel outside because because all we have right now is the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So we've laid out the character stakes pretty well. Um, let's talk now about scene stakes. Uh, so. Eric, what what are your takes on some of the the stakes that happen scene to scene in this movie? So there, there's a lot. I mean, we could break down every single scene and we could see what the the stakes are in that scene. It's when whenever we have a scene where two characters are in, are in conflict uh, or potentially mm-hmm. in conflict, that's a good time to set stakes. So when Jen in disguise is, has stolen the Green Destiny and Shulian is chasing after her, we have that brilliant fight scene the the, mm-hmm. the first of two that these characters will get that are just amazing yeah 
masterful. It's a real basic stake. It's will Jen get away with the green destiny? Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's sort of partial, right? Like it's sort of like, yeah, you, you got away with it, but only really because Shulian, I think recognizes her or acknowledges that, that getting the sword back now would, would be too much trouble would cause too much trouble. Yeah, well, and also Dark Cloud shoots a dart at her and helps Jen oh, escape. Oh, that's that right. Yeah, that's right. I forgot about that part. Right, and um, so there's there is some some outside interference there, mm-hmm. but then it comes up we, with that sort of leads later to when they are interacting as Shulian and and Jen, just you know, normal every day. They're not in this heterotopic world of this night mm-hmm. scene, and Shulian cottons on to Jen's identity if she hasn't already figured it out by the calligraphy that Jen is doing. So that's a nice little tie back to the movie that we talked about last time. Yeah. And so now it's the stakes are, will Shulian reveal Jen's identity? Because there's a lot riding on that. And will she reveal, so she like reveals it to Jen, right? But she's capable of doing more. But I think Jen is able Mm -hmm. to sort of like, hold her back from exposing the whole truth in that scene, or mm-hmm. there's a, there's like an emotional interchange there. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it goes back to Shulian's goal. You know, I wanted to get the sword back with while hurting as few people as possible. And this guy is a brand new governor in town. He's trying to get set up and there's a real threat of scandal in his household. And, uh, Shulian doesn't feel like he needs to deal with that. Uh, she, she is going to try and find a, a middle way out of the, out of the, dilemma right right so so there's so each scene there are there are stakes one character wants one thing another character wants another thing can they get what they want um i think the greatest scene in the movie is the one that has the greatest stakes and that's mm-hmm. the fight in the dojo between you shulian and you jen and god the stakes are oh. will shulian <laughs> teach jen humility because yeah. If she can teach Jen humility, there's a chance, right? Mm-hmm. There's a chance that Lee Mubai will actually be able to take her on as an apprentice. And there is yeah. a chance that the Green Destiny can go back to Certe and we can reset the whole situation and we can find a way out from this mess that's been created. Mm-hmm. And we get to watch. Julianne leaves it all out there. She leaves it all <laughs> out there. And it's it's an astonishing fight scene that communicates so much. Uh, and, mm. and Jen is unwilling to be humbled. I mean, Shulian yeah. eventually loses that, that those stakes and she puts everything mm-hmm. out there. And, and the thing is she crosses the finish line and she still loses. She pulls out that two handed long sword and she kills in that little bout in the, in the broader fight, mm-hmm. you know? And like, it doesn't matter that Jen's got a fancy sword that can cut up anything because Shulian's better than that. And she gets her. That's the thing. She gets her. And then she gives her a chance and Jen bats it away. Yep. And Ugh. she says, and she, she, she doesn't, she doesn't take the, the, the offer. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's one of those times that if it it's so crushing because you know that this can only lead to ruin. And it's, it's, it's so great. 
we go back to the very first episode we recorded about the night errant and what matters to the night errant, right? Right. Uh, and they value all these things more than they value their own life. And this is the moment where we see that proved with the most clarity. Jen would rather win a fight than let every other thread in this story come to a good or neutral ending. She would rather damn everyone around her if it means that she can demonstrate her power and live with freedom. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so she's giving up. I mean, those are her stakes, right? It's like, great. Mm -hmm. Shulian can teach you humility or you can win this fight, but lose everything else. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, yeah. Well, she doesn't like, I mean, we talk about stakes, like those are some stakes Mm -hmm. and they don't all have to be that high. They don't all have to be that high. Right. But, uh, they, it escalates as the, as the movie goes on. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have another one here and it's sort of listed and it's, it's basically every scene that Lee Mubai and Shulian are in. It's will Lee Mubai <laughs> and Shulian give into their love for each other? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, that's the tension. That's the, that's the conflict that they have in almost every scene. Uh huh. And again, you can distill that entire character arc down to just a single quote. When they're in the tea house in that random place, there's a dude fishing out on the pond and they're enjoying a quiet moment together and he's like holding her hand and it's the most intimate they've been and it's just super touching. And he says, Zhang Hu is a world of tigers and dragons full of corruption. I tried sincerely to give it up, but it's only brought us trouble. And she just kind of, she acknowledges it and she's patient. And, and and then he says, just be patient with me, Shulian. And, and she gives him that yeah. but she shouldn't because oh god <laughs> I, I think that's his defining moment too you know the one where he's like here i am out here and i'm with you and i have the option to be with you or to follow this other path and if you just give me a little more time which we find out at the end was time he didn't actually have to barter with yeah i mean it's his is a like a dream deferred right mm-hmm. i mean that's that's Liu Bai's story arc and mm-hmm. Shulian's is is whatever you want mm-hmm. right and jen's is whatever i want having those like strong character directions uh makes these stakes like easier to set and it makes them more powerful when they come up mm-hmm. and it lets you have that stake like multiple times throughout the story without it feeling repetitive mm-hmm. well and like we said in the last episode too you know the the character elements can be simple. The complexity comes in how they interact with each other. Limu Bai, his stakes are, he's given up enlightenment. Will he do it for revenge or will he do it for love? That's a really simple question that can be summarized in a single sentence. But the way it plays out with all of these things about this potential new disciple and with like all the moments that he has to choose love or to choose revenge, that creates a really complex story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a thing that uh, Phil talked about on Misdirected Mark a while ago, talking about um, the number of characters that you have or the number of people that you have really, and the number of interactions that it creates as you increase the number of people that are in that, mm. that are in there. And so when you, we, we talked about triangles last time and what a strong sort of building block that is for drama. Mm-hmm. So that takes it's three characters, nice strong triangle, right? But there's there's a limit to how much you can play with that before before it gets tired. 
we have, you know, five characters now. And so then the number of mm-hmm. dyads and triads that we can create with five characters all of a sudden goes way, way up. Mm-hmm. And we can have stakes and intentions running in multiple directions, all based on these simple premises, but that they interact differently and creates that complexity. So let's let's talk real quickly about uh, story stakes. So everything can have a stake attached to it. And again, they're always they're, they're, they're questions that you want to ask. Mm-hmm. And I think it's less important in the movie because it doesn't have a sequel and it doesn't continue on past the end here. These what if questions that, that we want to ask help us out at the table, especially because we don't know what's going to happen. So if we can ask these questions early, they'll help us later as the story progresses. So what I mean by a story stake is so in this movie, what happens when someone besides Limu Bai has the green destiny. What does that mean? Like we know that mm-hmm. uh, we know that Limu Bai is going to give up the green destiny. Mm-hmm. And we know that he's uniquely capable of holding it in stillness. Right. And, but it's still a powerful artifact. So what happens when someone else has that good, bad, mm-hmm. whoever, someone who's not Limu Bai. And we, and we see that mm-hmm. this one actually does spill out because we see what happens when a young, passionate, headstrong capable warrior gets the green destiny and it it ruins everything i mean that's what happens (laughs) but you could you could say well what happens okay it stays in certes household but now certes household becomes a magnet for people that want to steal it Mm -hmm. or that Certe is pressured into giving it to the governor who gives it to someone else, you know, that's a now dangerous warlord, right? I mean, like, these are stories that you can spin out that are all related to this stake question that, that the movie asks at the beginning, but could spin out completely differently based on what story follows out from that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this reminds me a little bit of the Magic Blade, uh, not specifically the weapon-to-weapon comparison, but... There's the line in uh, in the Magic Blade where the guy says, it's lonely at the top. You don't have any friends. You only have rivals. And by the same token, the Green Destiny is like the ultimate weapon. And it's constantly being warred over. It has no peace of its own. Uh, it's it's only ever the source of conflict. Right. And it, it it's only still in Limu Bai's hands. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's yeah. never still on its own. It's There's, there's a kind of a, a cute little joke that Certe is like, what am I running a warehouse here? No, they take the sword, they put <laughs> they it back. Away, they put know, it back. It's really good. It's a cute little moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if we were going to set a stake sort of like partway through the movie, like a story stake partway through the movie, what if mm-hmm. Jade Fox's plan succeeded? What if there was a poisoned Jung Hu apprentice in the Royal court? What happens then? Mm-hmm. What happens when you have someone who has all of the power of a noble and then also all of the power of this corrupted Wudan and like sinister poison and darts and Kung Fu and all of this stuff that that Jen has, what happens when she is let loose in the Royal court? I mean, I suspect it would look something like the minister in iron monkey. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we know that the Zhang who as a, as a heterotopia exists because it has a need to, and that need is that the government is incapable of doing anything on its own for one reason or another. It's ineffectual in this area. And if we take someone who's a master of the Zhang Hu, 
but is corrupted, is poisoned, and then we put them in control of the government. Yeah, that scale could wreak some real havoc. Right, and it it collapses this whole system that like makes the Zhang Hu viable. It punctures a hole in these divisions that that we've created here. That now the government is effective, but only because it wields the power of the Zhang Hu. But now it wields it for like completely the wrong reasons. And yeah, and, and there's nothing that we hate more in in a in a Wu Sha story than that kind of like chaos erupting. Yeah, it it always means death, and depending on your scale, it could mean a lot of death. Right, exactly. So, uh, so mm-hmm. when you talk about story stakes, this is a thing that if you are uh, a game master, or even if you're a player, like these are things to think about. Uh, we'll, we'll, I think we'll circle back around and we'll talk we'll talk about that more when we get to our gameable ideas. But like this is this is just spinning out a different story from the same stakes. I think can show how powerful they are. And how powerful it is not to answer the stakes, but just to ask the question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and and there's always a hidden question, right? So what happens when someone besides Li Mu Bai has the green destiny and who pays those costs? <laughs> That's the question that comes yeah, after that question mark is who pays? Mm-hmm. Yeah, true that. I think we're ready to move on to uh, gameable ideas. Do you think so? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So one of the first things I want to mention is something that we've kind of alluded to uh, already in the episode, Uh, this idea that, so Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the title of the book that was written in the 20s or 30s, uh, but it's come to be kind of a proverb in Chinese culture. It means talented or dangerous people hidden from view. And, And that's exactly the story of this whole thing, you know, but I think that it's easy to get caught up in all the flashy fights and in all of the, you know, magic moments that happen throughout and the romance and that sort of thing. And knowing that the title of the movie is specifically about talented or dangerous people who are hidden from view highlights something else that happens throughout this entire movie, which is to say that everything is oblique. There's a Confucian analect where he says, I'm not going to waste my breath on a student who isn't eager to learn. Uh, If I show a student one corner of a room and they don't come back to me with the other three corners of that room, I'm not going to repeat myself. (laughs) Um, And and the idea is that, you know, like not only should a student or anyone want to learn as much as they can about a situation, despite how little information they're given, but it's desirable to give someone just a little information so that you can see their initiative in trying to figure something more out. And we see that in almost every scene of this movie. There's so much oblique dialogue that happens. Uh, to give a few examples, at the very beginning, Li Mubai and Shulian are talking. And Li Mubai is talking about his meditation training. But what he's really saying is like, I've decided that your love is more important to me than my training. And I'm going to give my training up my entire life so that I can be with you. Uh, but they don't. that's not explicit at all, right? Uh, it's it's only ever alluded to. Later on in the movie, there's a scene where uh, Serte is talking to the new governor, Yu, and they're examining this exquisite 400-year-old sword. Serte is describing the sword and the historical context of it, and then he launches into an analogy about the sword, but what he's really talking about is how to rule effectively in this new city that the governor finds himself in. Another example later on, we see uh, Jen, she's bedding down for the night and Jade Fox is combing her hair out. And there's a little brief kind of tense exchange there 
And Jen's like, I'm tired. Stop combing my hair. And then Jade Fox is like, okay, well, I know what you're going to do. You're going to go out. But what she says is, I'll close the window for you tonight. That's all she says. And what she's saying is like, if that window's open, I know you're going to go out. So I'm going to close it so that you'll stay in tonight because you shouldn't go out. And of course, Jen does go out the window. (laughs) And then something that you mentioned specifically earlier, Julienne, after she has this fight with Jen, she comes and she sees Jen at her house and Jen is like, oh, well, let me draw your name. You know, it'll be fun. Uh, and Julian makes the remark calligraphy and swordplay are linked. It's all in the wrist, you know. And uh, that is, I think, the moment where Julian is like, I'm on to you, Jen. I know what you did last night. I recognize you. She also says, I never realized how much my name looked like a sword. Yeah, yeah. right. It's really good. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of really subtle giveaways that happen here. And I think that it's, difficult to gamify that because a lot of that boils down to your own role play and dialogue in the moment. But this idea that there is a sort of language of the underworld, like a heterotopies, if you will, I think that's important. It's a way for people who are in the know to communicate about things without in, in public, without betraying their knowledge to people who are outside, you know, I, there is a really good way to do this at the table. Uh, and this is a thing that, that mm-hmm. I like to use a lot where you say the thing that you're going to say, and then you step out of character and you say what I mean, or, you know, that I mean this. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. And I think, so, I mean, the general premise is that we're all at once actors in this story who are familiar with what's happening, but we're also characters in this story. And the glory of role-playing is that we can have an agenda, but we can still be surprised by what happens. And I think that's a really good technique is to say, like, to make your character make this statement and then step out for a little bit and be like, okay, as an actor, this is what just right, happened. Exactly. You, you know, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to wait for you to pick up on it. I'm going to tell you. Uh, that that this mm-hmm. is the thing that's going on, or you can tell I am feeling this way because it's hard. Like we're not all mm-hmm. great actors, right? But but we can give like the nice right. thing is that we can operate on on these multiple levels, and we can communicate all of that data to each other in in that way. And it's a little slow, but it works. I mean, it's it, we're not all Michelle Yeoh, you know. We can't communicate all of this yeah. like just so perfectly. But yeah, it's um, that's a nice one. That's a nice one that GMs can use as well. There's a great thing in Apocalypse World where Vincent Baker talks about telling the players, like they go and they talk to a guy and he tells them a lie. And then the GM just sort of like gives them a look like, can you believe the guy just said that? Just letting them in on the fact that like they're not, there's no role or anything like that. You know, this guy is lying. It's a it's a crunchier example that I'm about to give, but there is a prevailing mentality in Savage Worlds where, you know, if, if you call for a notice check, because there are bennies in Savage Worlds and you can choose to spend a benny and re-roll, but in order to make an informed choice about whether you're going to spend a benny and re-roll, you have to know what is at stake, mm-hmm. right? So on the one hand, a GM could say, make a notice roll. And then if you fail, you're like, oh shit, do I want to do I want to know what happens or am I comfortable just being in the dark? How do I know if I should spend a Benny mm-hmm. right now? On the other hand, the GM could say, 
give me a notice roll because you're trying to notice if there's, you're trying to notice the pack of ninjas who are right around the corner about to ambush, yes. you, you know, and that way, if a person fails, they can make an informed choice and say, I am comfortable with my character not knowing that there are ninjas about to attack. But as a, as a player, I know what's going on. And that, that ramps up the stakes for me in this. Yeah. Moment. And that I, I really like that because it steps outside of like, you can only be the actor for your, for your character. And then it lets you, mm-hmm. you know, let's say you fail this, like the GM says, make a notice roll to see if these ninja these ninjas sneak up on you and you, you blow the roll and you're like, oh, I think it'd be more exciting if they snuck up on me. Right. So I'm going to now, now you've given me right. a choice, right? You've trusted me to, to make this choice. I could spend a Benny or I could just let it happen. And then a really nice thing to do after that is to go, what are you doing that lets them sneak up on you? Because that makes yeah. it not that you yeah. failed and that your character is incompetent, but that there was something mm-hmm. else going on and you get to tell me what that is. Yeah. Gives you a way to add to the story, even though the dice tell told you that you right, failed. Right. It doesn't yeah. mean that your character is bad. Um, and so there's mm-hmm. explore all of these levels of communication uh, in your gaming, because there's so much communication going on in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, whether people are communicating uh, through violence, like we talked about last week. And there's a really good point I want to bring up in just a second about that. But they communicate obliquely when they talk, but the fact that Shulian and Limubai love each other is no secret. I oh, mean, yeah. it's everyone knows. Serte knows. Yeah. Everyone knows. Oh, and he ribs him so often about it. I love that first scene between him and Shulian because he's like, you know, uh, it's kind of a sign of cowardice that you guys haven't acted on this in so long. And she's like, well, we're we're warriors. We're not. We're not cowardly. Mm-hmm. He's like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. So the part that I wanted to bring up about um, swinging back to violence is communication. And last week we talked a lot about sort of emotional communication, but I wanted to uh, talk about mm-hmm. laying in some more practical communication. So there's the fight between Jen in disguise after she's stolen the green destiny and Shulian. And Shulian does this strike on her and Jen evades it. And she ends up having to say it out loud. She ends up having to say, where did you learn that Wudan technique that let you do that? Yeah. But that's the thing that the GM could just be like, that's a Wudan technique. They don't, they don't teach women. Mm-hmm. Right. And now you have a mystery. Mm-hmm. You don't have to, because we don't have to communicate to a separate audience. We can make these, we can build that in and we can be explicit about that information. Uh, in a way that I don't think I really talked about last time uh, because we were lacking in some of these concrete details, but Mm -hmm. it's a, it's that's, I mean, it's just, it's the same technique that we were just talking about of being explicit with your communication and stepping up a level and talking on the, the, the story level or talking directly to the character and not necessarily just describing what happens. Like you would know because Mm -hmm. you're an expert that that is a Wudan technique. Well, and it goes back to this theme that we've been revisiting about or continually visiting about communication and identity and Mm -hmm. discovery. You know, I think, I think a real core element of the Wuxia genre is that people are unknown until they fight each other and then they become known. Yeah. I mean, that was a huge deal in hero. Like that was the crux of the whole story Mm -hmm. was that these characters fought and then they knew each other. And that changed everything. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing about it is I was thinking was that 
when characters, the closer characters are in scale, the, when they fight, the more intimate that fight is because they are, mm. because they, they are, they're just learning so much about each other, you know, poor master yeah. Bo who ends up hitting himself with his own <laughs> weapons or kind of getting in the way and doing all yeah. of these things. He's not learning anything, but when, mm-hmm. when Jen and Limu Bai are fighting and their scales are closer, he's mm-hmm. learning everything about her as they fight. Yeah. You know, though, I would say that there, I would say that the difference in scale between Jen and master Bo is similar to the difference in scale between Limu Bai and Jen. I think he Limu Bai is so much better than Jen. And I think like Jen learns everything she there is to know about Master Bo in that two right. second fight that they have because there's just not much right. to right. know about him. <laughs> he's, he's not a he's not a super right. deep character. Uh and Limu Bai, like you said, he learns everything about You know, Jen actually now that, that I'm fight. saying that, I think it's not quite true. I think because there is a distance there that he doesn't learn mm-hmm the most important thing about her is is that she won't let herself be controlled by him. So I guess, I guess we should look at it in terms of, of characters that are like basically the same in scale. Like when we go back and we look at hero and we look at the King and broken sword, you know, they were basically the Mm -hmm. same level of scale. And then, Mm -hmm. and then when they fought, they, they, they were able to, that was the the intimate connection but when mm-hmm. broken sword and flying snow fought there's just that distance there and she couldn't learn the thing that she wanted to until the very end well and from this uh for an example from this movie too i don't think that jen and shulian are of the same scale but i think that jen with the green destiny is the same mm-hmm. scale mm-hmm. as shulian and that that kind of goes back to this idea that like that we've been exploring too, that there are things that can boost your scale beyond its normal levels. But Jen and Shulian already know each other fairly well. And I think that comes to bear in their fight against each other, but also for sure, they learn everything there is to know about each other in that second fight that they have. Yeah. They don't, they don't leave anything on the table, uh, especially at the end. Yeah. When Shulian demonstrates her skill and, Jen still rejects her plea. God, I'm going to have to watch know, that so fight good. again after it's this. So good. It's I the just part. cannot get it's enough. It's the best of it. part of the movie. <laughs> it's so good. You have a note in here about relics as scale boosters. So that I mean that that's really what we're talking about here. Yeah. Uh, before we got distracted and dreaming about that fight scene. The Green Destiny is clearly a scale booster. It's a relic of some kind, you know. It it makes anyone who's holding it super powerful. By the same token, I think the blinding powder from Iron Monkey, I think the uh, the poison from Magic Blade, I think also the poison that Jade Fox uses at the end of this movie is a scale booster. It's the thing that brings her in line with Lee Mu Bai. And while he's already divided his attentions, trying to like revive Jen and talking to Shulian and that sort of thing, she finally managed, Jade Fox finally manages to slip through his defenses. And I think I am willing to say that Limu Bai's enlightenment or closeness to it is its own kind of relic. I think that he's really powerful on his own. He's got a huge scale, but then the fact that he's so close to enlightenment just puts him so far beyond anyone else in this movie in terms of scale. 
because he he's never trying ever. It's always just he's always got this little smirk on his face, you know, when they're fighting in the bamboo. Can't believe oh, we bamboo. haven't mentioned yeah. the bamboo fight. Until it's it's just not so now. much like the <laughs> fight in the bamboo. It's just when they're both standing on the same tree and he is just so Yeah, calm. and he's just kind of yeah. swaying back and forth. He's so great. <laughs> That's mug jerk. No, he just looks he's just like perfectly at ease with because he is like you said, he's nearly enlightened. Yeah. He is he is mm-hmm. at ease in every situation, except for when he deals with Julien. Yeah. And and I was gonna say, I think the important thing about a relic is that it can be taken away from you. And and in the gre- case of the Green Destiny, how it's taken away from you is really clear. With enlightenment, it's like, well, well, how do you do that? But it's when you get tangled up by either love or right. revenge. Whenever you, you know? have attachment, that that damages your enlightenment. I mean, if we're going to get real, real Buddhist about this, so um, one other thing I wanted to mention in in the gameable ideas section is this idea. You said, you know, Shulian punches Jen in the stomach, and Jen redirects it, and Shulian says, uh, "You've been trained at Udan," uh, kind of incredulously. And then later on, whenever Lee Mubai and Jade Fox have their first fight against each other, Jen interrupts it and starts fighting Lee Mubai. And he is watching her fight. And he says, Jade Fox isn't good enough to know that Xuan Pui move that you just taught me or that you just used against me. Who is your real master? And it's this idea that I have this idea that your master, more so than your style, is kind of an apocalypse world style playbook you know you if you are familiar with the world of Zhang Hu, you also know the lineages of people and their and their different studies and i think in that way the character options that are presented to you are limited by whomever your master is and maybe you can exceed them but then you have to find a new master of some kind, even if that master is something more esoteric, like seeking enlightenment or something, you know? Or the master is the thing that you define first, and then that that expands. That helps you sort of generate your character. Like you take your master, and then you take a situation, and you're like, okay, well, what character links these two things together? And like that's how you spin out the yeah. story of your character. We, we had talked about in our, in our Lost episode sort of generational play where master mm-hmm. styles had certain keywords or something that, that would follow along and they could get mixed together as you learned more styles and then you would pass it on to your apprentices. And like that, that's kind of what gets that kind of keyed up in my mind again is, is that sort of thing of that generational play, you know, especially because you talked about this being part of a novel series where Limu buys what father or something was was the character before and and then there were characters that that follow after mm-hmm. like we followed Jen and all of that kind of thing and it'd be interesting to see how that changed your character mechanically as you progress through these gener- these generational changes absolutely and to give an example of that we've talked a little bit about the sequel to this movie already and the the consensus is that it's not nearly as good as this one and that's fine but from the first moment I watched it, my impression generally was that it was like somebody was running a D&D adventure in the world of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And so while it's not as good as the original movie, I think it's definitely illustrative in the sense that it shows you some ways that you can kind of distill the elements of this world into something that's really gameable. And so I would I don't think we're actually going to watch that movie for this series. Maybe we will, but I would encourage people to go check it out 
in that context as something that's a more distilled and gamified version of this masterpiece. I mean, I I think that sounds a lot like what we were talking about earlier, where we have all of these characters and they have these ties to each other and they have all of these stakes set. And depending on where you put the focus Mm -hmm. and what strings you pull on as the, like you imagine if this was like your table of players, right? Like one person was Mm -hmm. by that cheater. And then one person was, uh, (laughs) Julian and Jan and, and all of that. And then, and then you, you play it out sort of scene by scene and each person is working on uh, their personal character stakes. And then there are also scene stakes that, that interact and you could see how this story could play out differently given the same set of characters Mm -hmm. and the same directives. But if you put emphasis in different spots, you could spin it out differently. And that's really the power of role-playing games is that is a thing that you can do. And, you know, we don't have to wait for sequels or that sort of thing. We can take these characters and we can, we can remix them or we can take this, this style of storytelling and we can, we can do that. We can make, these stories, we can change these stories up. We can take their elements and we can recombine them and see what comes out. And I, I think that's that that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. That's what stake setting gets you. So the only other idea I had for the movie uh, or drawn from the movie is this idea that it seems really clear that there are moments of revelation and then there are moments of uh, regrouping that happen in a cycle in this movie. The sword gets stolen. Shulian chases Jen, uh, but Jen escapes. And then Limu Bai shows up. And Limu Bai and Shulian talk about how they're going to move forward from here. And they determine that the plan is to have Jen or Shulian go talk to Jen and see what she can figure out kind of undercover, so to speak, uh, with her heterotopies underworld language. And then the next scene is having tea with uh, Jen and and learning something new about the situation. And I think that general format is emblematic of the genre. You you establish a goal in one scene. For example, I want to learn X character's weakness. And then you establish the method by which you're going to do this, whether it's combat or a tea ceremony or like dancing or whatever. And then you play through that scene to determine success and failure. And I think that can be really helpful for us as we're going through and designing this game in terms of breaking up the arc of a session between moments of action and revelation and moments of determination and uh, uh, reconnoitering or whatever. Sure. And they're not structurally in that way. Uh, A scene is a scene. Right. Hopefully a scene has a goal, because otherwise, if it doesn't have a goal, Mm -hmm. you probably just shouldn't have that scene. You should probably just cut it out. But, you know, so some of them are martial goals, right? Like I want to defeat this person. Uh, And some of them are social goals and some of Mm -hmm. them are, you know, informational. Like I I want to learn this information and I will coerce them into giving it to me and that sort of thing. Creating strong scenes is... Mm-hmm. super important and again being sort of explicit about what you want out of those scenes and this is a thing that uh, players can do i want to go and do this like i want to go and have tea with jen and i want to learn uh, what her secret plans are right and then you can play that scene mm-hmm. you don't say and then i learn what the secret plans are and and because then why bother playing the scene but you go and then you you get to interact 
and you both know that that's what your goal is. And then exactly what you said, you can, you can play and then you can determine the success and failure of that. And that's, that's a great way of setting those scene, those scene level stakes uh, and playing that out. It creates really strong mm-hmm. play. So I think that's a great, great thing to highlight. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I said earlier, you know, you establish a goal in those uh, interlude moments, but I think the more appropriate word would be stakes since that's what we're talking about in this episode <laughs> right. anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a thing that, that GM should always be thinking about, but players should lobby for their characters. And if there's a scene that you need, mm-hmm. or there is a, there is a goal that you want that you're willing to set stakes for, be explicit about it. So, and and mm-hmm. then you can have these really tight dynamic scenes like we see with Li Mubai and Shulian, you know, and like that, you can have that at the table, but you need to go in knowing uh, that, that that's what's on the line because scenes tend to get a little airy, you know, people don't quite know what they're doing. Yeah. And it, it's even cool just to stop and say, Hey, what's going on in the scene? What are you trying to get at? And then, and then stop and play mm-hmm. and, and jump back in. Yeah. I think that's a really smart, uh, smart thing to highlight. Absolutely. Um, I think that leads right into our stealing as art section, actually. Absolutely. So there are some games that really do stake setting. Well, I want to talk about dogs in the vineyard. I've talked about dogs in the vineyard before, even if you aren't interested in playing Mormon paladins in a West that never was, uh, cause it's kind of a hard sell. Um, <laughs> It, yeah. you should read the book because pound for pound, probably one of the best GM advice books I've ever read and session preparation and that sort of thing. But it also talks about, it's explicitly about stake setting. That's what the whole mechanic is. There's this complicated sort of like bidding, me- poker like bidding mechanism that goes on in the game and you can escalate the scene to get what you want, but you have to set the stakes first. And then the dice, you escalate the scene based on how far you're willing to go to get the stakes that you set. So if I want to get you to admit that you, let's see, it's dog in the vineyard. So if I want to, if I, if I want you to admit that you acted impurely towards sister Bertha, but you're not willing to do that, like we'll set those stakes and we start with talking, Right. And then maybe, maybe we escalate to me mm-hmm. bringing in our shared family connection, right? And I'm putting familial pressure on you. And then you're still not doing it. So then maybe I suck you in the jaw. And that may ruin our relationship mm-hmm. going forward. But let's say that sock in the jaw got me what I wanted. So that, that I, I got the stakes. But now I've had to escalate yeah. it just from talking through family pressure, through violence. and uh, And now... Like, great, you got what you wanted. He admits that he had um, impure thoughts about Sister Bertha or whatever. and But now you've punched him, and now he's mad. And now he's going to tell everybody that, that, that you came into the town and you beat him up, and, and he's going he's gonna to cause trouble for you. So that's a game explicitly about stake setting. And the, the mechanic is, is a little slow, but it's, it's excellent for highlighting the thing that the game is about. Uh, another game that has explicit stake setting uh, is Burning Wheel. Uh, I actually just got done playing Mouse Guard, so that's the one that I know the best. And Mouse Guard really takes the stake setting from the Duel of Wits and Burning Wheel and applies it to kind of the whole game. And when you get into a conflict in Mouse Guard, mm-hmm. both sides 
explicitly state their goals. So this is where your goals came in. Your goals and stakes are sort of interchangeable. Mm -hmm. uh, goals are, this is what I want. And stakes are more of a question, right? But they're sort of two sides of the same coin. Uh, and then you play out the mechanics. And in Mouse Guard and Burning Wheel, you essentially do damage to the other person's, like if it's an argument, you're essentially like do damage to their argument based on how well you do and and what and what different sort of things that you do cool. so it works for fighting it works for arguments it works for all kinds of things and then at the end you compare whose argument was so somebody if somebody's uh, it's called disposition gets dropped to zero then they have lost the conflict but depending on how much they lost the conflict by you must compromise so unless it's an all-out war like mm. it's an all-out just route then both sides have to compromise and the person who lost the who lost gets yeah. to offer the compromise first. They say, "Would you be willing to take this? Would you Would you willing like if you were if we were having an argument and you said like you, you're not welcome in this town anymore? Would you be willing to say, well, you can finish up your business and then you're never welcome back in this town anymore?" Uh, that's a really similar mechanic to um, social conflict in Savage Worlds. Uh, it's I'm sure it's not as robust as you'd find in Mouse Guard, but uh, the general thing is that you do three rounds of opposed persuasion checks and you have modifiers based on your the role-playing strength of your argument and what have you. And then you tally up successes throughout those three rounds. And, you know, Savage Worlds, you can get raises and get more than one success in a round. But then at the end, you compare all the tallies. And if you've if you've tied with the person, then you don't succeed. If you've got like one or two points more than them, then you succeed, but kind of at a cost, it's the compromise you're talking about. And you have to get, you know, three or four successes above your opponent if you want to just out and out win. So it's actually not common that you're going to do that. Um, and it sounds like it's it's basically the same premise. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds very similar. So uh, if you don't have uh, Mouse Guard or Burning Wheel to hand, definitely check out the social conflicts in Savage Worlds, which I did not know about. So that's excellent. So those games are really good. There are some other games that we could mention that, that talk about stake setting, but I'm sure they'll come up later as we keep talking. But I mm -hmm. wanted to talk about uh, Dramatic Exchange and talking about Robin Law's uh, drama system. So drama system, I haven't had a chance to play it, unfortunately, but it's all about dramatic scenes. It's not really about the the, the, the punching and the kicking and the rolling against armor class and stuff that your your normal games do. It's basically... People mm -hmm. start a scene and it's very much like what we were talking about earlier, where characters have a, they have goals that they want and they talk to the other characters and they try to get them to give them what they, what their goals are. And if you, if you refuse, you have to pay the person that asked you a token. And if you, um, if you accept, then you take a token. And so what happens is these, these, these game tokens let you later force things to happen. They let you jump into scenes that you weren't, that you weren't established in that let you force someone to take your, uh, your offer, right? You say they're like, so it, it means it's so that you can't have the thing that happens where a character just stonewalls and they say, Oh, my character would never do that. Mm. So what happens is eventually you say, well, you've refused me a certain number of times and I'm going to make you give me what I want. Because now you've given me enough currency. Now I'm just gonna I'm gonna cash that in, and you didn't want it to happen before, and now you really don't want to happen. Don't want it to happen. 
But here we go. And in Wuxia, there's always a way to entangle someone. If they're invincible in one area, they have a weakness in another. It's just guaranteed, you know? I mean, I, I think when you could play something like a, a very interpersonal version of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon using drama system, the the martial arts aspect wouldn't necessarily be there, but all the drama would be there. You know, or, or something like Hero or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Hero's probably not a great example because it's the plot's so complicated. But <laughs> but Crouching Tiger, <laughs> Hidden Dragon, for sure, you could definitely you could definitely play out in this way and you could mm-hmm. you could probably even model the scenes. Um there can even be multiple people in the scene and tokens going in multiple different directions and people can exchange tokens, so you essentially end up with the same number that you started with. You know, it's 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 pretty robust. In that way, I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but it's it's something that I'm I'm interested in. If you're interested in how do you mechanize dramatic exchange, uh, that is one way to do it. And then the last thing cool. looks a little odd sitting amongst all of these these games that I have listed, but stealing is art. I have just Jane Austen written down. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you should go and read yourself some Pride and Prejudice, or at the very least, go watch a good adaptation of uh perhaps even Ang Lee's sense and sensibility because if you want to see people communicating obliquely and people having emotional stakes that they don't directly go after but they both sort of like talk around it Jane Austen is your go-to it was really funny because it came up in that YouTube video that you sent me that we'll link in the show notes about Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon mm-hmm. and I was like oh great I'm so glad that someone else is talking about Jane Austen because there's a lot of people that reject Jane Austen thinking that it's just romance, but there's so much going on there. Mm -hmm. It's dense in the way that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is dense. For me personally, I've, I've never really cared much for Jane Austen. I think uh, the reason why Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon works for me, whereas Jane Austen doesn't is because of the fight scenes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Take that for what you will. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, sure. You know what? I'll own it. I'll be proud of that. Why not? But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And coincidentally, I don't know. I don't think that this is anything more than a coincidence, but we can tell from Limu Bai's mm-hmm. hair, the queue that he wears uh, shaved with a long braid. That's from the Qing dynasty, which dates from anywhere from the 1600s to the 1900s. So Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is sort of contemporary or could conceivably be contemporary with sure, absolutely. Jane Austen stories. So it's interesting to think about the cultural parallels there, even though Clearly, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, there were no European colonists yet. People get a little sniffy about Jane Austen. And look, if Ken Haidt thinks that Jane Austen is like essential reading, I also think Jane Austen is essential reading. Um, But more importantly, my wife thinks it is, and she got me into it, and (laughs) I am am fully on board. Maybe I'll have to go back and read them and then write an apology to my high school English teacher or something. (laughs) If If the last time you read it was in high school reread it now or at least watch watch one because it, it it does it seems a little like like romantic and kind of like it doesn't really mean anything but there is a moment so when Limubai throws away the green destiny and it like goes over the waterfall mm-hmm. and jen goes and she dives in and she gets it and then she presumably gets sick from being in that cold water and then she gets captured by by jade fox and then poisoned there is a a part in Pride and Prejudice, where a character is essentially like forced to go out in the rain, and then 
she ends up being sick uh, yeah. and being at the household of the place that the other character really would like to be at. Right. She ends up at the Darcy's and yeah. And that's so right. I was like, that's a Jane Austen moment right there. There happens to be a sword involved. And then there's a really like cool fight scene right after that. But that moment right there is Jane right. Austen. Huh? Yeah. And you know, I mean, I've, I've read most of Pride and Prejudice and I've seen three or four movie adaptations. So I'm familiar with that part at least, but um, yeah, that's a good parallel. Yeah, I hadn't, so I hadn't considered we can, that. We can broaden our horizons a little bit, but we can move on. Should we, uh, should we, we've got a bunch of comments, a bunch of real good comments again. We do. Yeah. Thanks everybody for writing in. Some of you wrote uh, novellas and uh, <laughs> we're, we're staggered. Uh, we're, we're deeply uh, pleased that you have so much to say about the show. So thank you very much. Thank you. We we obviously read every word, but we're not going to be able to read out every word. Um, so yeah. we'll do our best to kind of summarize your points. If we find out, if you find out that we missed what you were saying, just let us know. We'll talk about it again. So I'll start off with this first one. Uh, Todd Crapper has a couple of comments. One of them he gave us, you know, like a week ago. And then one of them was yesterday, I think, um, as of the time of this recording. And he says, first, I'm curious to hear thoughts on how often dice would play a part in fight scenes like those in Hero and other movies you discuss. Some games have you roll for every attack, but there are so many maneuvers and flourishes in these films that clearly wouldn't translate to the table if you relied solely on randomization. And then his comment later on was kind of similar. Uh, this idea of narrative impact and injuries or wounds in a martial arts RPG that doesn't mimic the whole swing and hit mentality of a D&D was a major nutbuster while I worked on High Plains Samurai, which he says definitely not emulating the genre, but the choreography at least. Uh, he goes on to say, what I found worked well was allowing players to make a choice or a sacrifice to negate the damage or consequence or take it willingly. This lets the players decide on when their characters will be hurt so that it better suits the story. Let the game play out as normal and then the players decide if that should happen, but as a limited resource so as not to completely negate what the dice cards or whatever happened to roll. Right. So, so Todd's sort of like answered his own question, at least for his, at least for his game. Yeah, I think so. And I think what he says about giving players the option to negate the damage for a consequence is going to be really important in whatever system we end up coming up with, because one thing that's becoming clear is that this genre is all about action and consequence, but the fighting aspect of this game is something that's really close to my heart. And I have this pipe dream. I can't, I, I'm sure I've said this on a previous episode, but I have this idea that somehow the fighting could be boiled down to a purely tactical experience whenever in, in certain circumstances. And so there are no dice rolls. It's, it's just a matter of who's better strategically. Um, the more we talk about different movies, the more I realize that narrative stakes are really a lot more important in this genre than just fighting prowess. But I'm holding a, a flame and I think I might carry it to my grave uh, to try and find some way to have a real satisfying tactical combat experience. In I, this thing. I think there might be a way that we can marry these things that were. Todd's right. We're not going to do every like maneuver and flourish and, and, and all of that. Right. But we're going to be able to put in a certain amount of momentum changers. that go back and forth. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, I think based on what the stakes of the conflict are and what the characters prowess and scales are, is going to let them have more opportunity to 
do more varied momentum changers. So, I mean, that's, I mean, I guess that's kind of what mm. I'm thinking about is that there's, that we don't have to, we don't have to just have a narrative or just have a, uh, a tactical game. We can have, you need to be t- like, yeah. I mean, I and, think that this is one thing that burning wheel does really well is that it, it does both in that it is definitely a game that you can play. You can get better at it. And you can go, okay, well, I think they're going to do this next. So if I do this maneuver, then I'll get these many dice and I'll get, you know, and I can describe it this way to work it into the fiction. And then when that goes off and that keys me up for the next thing, which is going to get me closer to my goal. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's definitely a way to tie it together. The, the, the thing I think that's, that we're going to struggle with is making sure that it feels like Wuxia combat Mm -hmm. and that it has that that pace and that excitement because combat is generally the slowest part of any game. Right. And this one, we're going to want to make sure that it like it trips along fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, and I think Todd maybe has provided a, an avenue to the solution for us, you know, uh, this idea that it's a tactical experience and it's a matter of your skill as a player. Uh, I keep imagining it being a card based system, but, so just for example, you know, you if you are better at laying out the proper card strategy, then you will win this combat. But there is a narrative element where someone can say, instead of taking damage and you hitting me with this successful card combination, I'm taking a narrative consequence to negate that. And that is a good way to build stakes, too, because then even the underdog in terms of strategy can still come out on top in the fight, uh, as long as they're willing to accept the consequences afterward before, yeah, before you reveal that, let me, let me tell you what I'm willing to do so that that doesn't affect me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, it um, could be this really interesting bidding game. So our next comment is from Carlin Kendrick and he writes in to kind of share his experiences with watching hero. And he was surprised when he watched it, when it, when it came out, assumingly, uh, that that the hero died at the end because that's not like most movies, especially not heroic movies that that we normally see. And there wasn't a boss fight. This is one thing he says at the time people were panning the movie because the ending not being a boss fight, but the fact that it wasn't a final fight, like in so many other Kung Fu movies made the rest of the story retroactively more meaningful. And I think Carlin hit on the whole key of that movie is that the key of that movie is that Every step of the way, it is recontextualizing the the thing that you saw before, and it is making it retroactively more meaningful. And then mm-hmm. that's capped off at the end by the death of Nameless, and it, it that kind of puts the pin in it and says, "Okay, the story is now done. Now go back and think about what you just watched." Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's a really like good thing to to pick out. I mean, I don't know if you've had sessions like this, but I've definitely had sessions where. I have, especially in one shots where you've done the, you've done the thing that your character wants to do. And then the, really the only thing that makes sense is for them to, to die in that attempt. Um, I've had some very sort of like powerful blood opera style games that go that way. And nice. uh, they, they make the, they make the rest of the action more powerful. They, they heighten the rest of the action by recontextualizing everything that came before Carlin's got another, uh, a, a little short one here. It says, is one of the upcoming episodes about the, you killed my master trope and why it will never get old because it's perfect. 
<laughs> I mean, uh, you're it, right. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it kind of is. But I, yeah. I think that when we talked about it a little bit in this one, that mm-hmm. the master-student relationship in in wuxia films and in 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 uh, a lot of Asian cultures in general is quite different. There's so much more duty that's wrapped up in that, mm-hmm. and there's so much more faith and reverence and everything that that gets placed on that situation. That that's what makes the "you killed my master" trope so much more powerful than when somebody's surrogate father figure gets killed in a Western movie and then they're on a quest for vengeance and you feel bored because you didn't care about that person to begin Mm -hmm. with. That's what I see a lot in Western movies. To use another example, Batman's whole character arc started when his parents were killed, right? And I think a lot of people criticize that moment saying basically, shouldn't you have got over this at some point? Are you still like agonizing every day over the death of your parents? And I think that betrays a little bit of the cultural differences between the Western character, Batman and the Eastern character, Lee Mubai. Uh, The context culturally is just insanely different between the two of them. That's why I was like, I kind of even want to see more of this with Lee Mubai and Jade Fox. Like I want to see what that challenge to the master student relationship looks like when you see it on screen because Mm -hmm. that's the ultimate betrayal i mean that's the betrayal that happens between um jade fox and and eugen is there is a master student betrayal next we have jared rasher who uh wrote in with quite a few thoughts uh and they're all great um I'm going to tackle the first part of it, and then Eric will handle the second here. So he starts off by saying, uh, you've mentioned a scale a few times on the show, which puts me in mind of the fate mechanic of the same name. At one point in time, I thought about introducing a stunt in fate that would cause people of a lower scale to be unable to affect someone of a higher scale, which reminds me a bit of what you mentioned about people outside of scale being ineffectual against the main characters of the story. So I've played fate adjacent games before, but I've never actually played a game of fate. And this had me running off to go download the rules and actually read them and learn about scale in, uh, in the fate system. And I really like the presentation of it. It seems like it's for a uh, larger scale situations. Uh, and I mean that not not purely in terms of the scale of an individual character, but you're talking about organizations or companies or nations or something like that when you're talking about scale in fate. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot of justification that a single individual in a wuxia story is as capable as an entire organization uh, in the same world. So I think there's a lot that we can get from this. Um, definitely something that we should consider as we develop the system for this game. Well, and the fun thing about fate is that because it's a toolkit, this question's actually been answered several mm-hmm. different ways. So there's the base one that you saw. There's actually a kung fu related one in in the in Tian Sha, the uh, the Wu Sha mm-hmm. kind of fate variant that you actually have a rank in in Jung Hu, and it it gives you extra stuff based if your Jung Hu is higher than your mm-hmm. your opponents. I think it also adds to their difficulty to hit you and all of that kind of stuff. So that's another scale changer. And then there's another really nice, uh, kind of an elegant one in, oh, I don't remember. It's War of Agaptus. And I don't, can't remember if there is a like another thing to that title. But that's like the Muppets, the oh, man, Dark Muppets. That sounds wild. <laughs> one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty wild. 
Um, but there's a really nice one there that if you are higher in scale than than your opponent, that you can change one die to a plus. Oh, cool! And so you can take you can even take a minus all the way to a plus. Wow! And yeah, so it's really powerful, but it caps you at that plus four. So it's a really mm-hmm. like it's a really interesting way of doing scale. So fate's got a bunch of great ways to do fate. Uh, to, I'm sorry to do scale. And uh, so there's, yeah, there's lots of ways to explore even just that mm-hmm. one thing, which is so great about yeah. game design. So moving on down to uh, a little bit down, he, he has a few more questions. He has a few more comments about supers and rewatching some of his old movies. But he also talks about that. He says, I've noticed in a, in, that a lot of modern games have a system where wounds or stress are a measure of how long the character can take damage and still remain in that fight. But that pool of points doesn't determine if the character is impaired or dying, just if they can go on in the scene. Characters can start the next scene potentially on top form even after getting incapacitated or stressed out in the next scene. Uh, On the other hand, dramatic wounds, uh, critical hits, consequences can show when a major thing has just happened in a fight, and that's a better measure of impairment or mortal danger. So he's just been thinking about these things, and especially where they overlap between uh, Wuxia stories and Western Mm -hmm. swashbuckling stories, which I think when we see the uh, Seventh Sea Katai and coming out soon, and then Seventh Sea, I think that's a natural thing to sort of think about how those stories are going to overlap uh, because that's kind of what they're made for. Uh, I think this is a really interesting thing to talk about because this really does a lot. How wounds are, are handled in games tells you what they think about violence Mm -hmm. and what they think about that relationship with story. Mm -hmm. So seven C second edition has a really cool way of, of, handling wounds in that you they mostly don't do anything until you hit certain thresholds Mm -hmm. but the first big major threshold that you hit i think it gives you an extra die on all of your rolls like it's good ah so you're bloodied and and you're serious bloody you're like oh my blood's up now i'm ready to go i'm ready to fight yeah um and then the next one i think the next one is is better for your opponents and then the third one is is like really good for you like you get a like a bunch of extra dice or something or your opponents get less dice i can't remember exactly but it's really like it really shows the 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 swashbuckling heart at the center of that game Mm -hmm. Um, i for me when i read that i was like oh this part's super interesting and perhaps theftable uh when it when it comes to what we're going to think about in terms of wounds and critical hits when we we look at wuxia and swashbuckling stories they're they're not really about the knocking person's hit points down until they hit zero and then they fall over yeah right they're more about narrative things like mm-hmm. swashbuckling are they're almost never about like i just need to defeat until it gets to the end it's never just like i need to defeat you they're always uh i need to get past you to get to my goal because somebody's captured the prince and i need to go rescue him or you know, we need to have this fight so that I can learn about your true abilities or I can recover this thing that you stole. Like, it's not so much about that. So I think thinking really hard about wounds, whether you need them, whether that's communicating the correct thing to play mm-hmm. is a really important thing. It's a really great point that that Jared brings up. I Absolutely. Think. 
Yeah, and I think that's another ingredient for our combat system. You know, if we have a tactical experience where the more skilled person is the victor, uh, but we have narrative consequences that allow somebody to escape that tactical victory or tactical defeat, I guess you would say. Uh, I think it's also important that if someone does accept that tactical defeat, they're not necessarily screwed for the rest of the session or the rest of the campaign or something. They still have the option to recover from that and and be a competitor, an equal contender in the story. You know, we can decide later whether that's as the same character, whether that's as a different character, whether they retain that power as a player or whether it it's on their characters mm-hmm. that play. So there's, there's all kinds of interesting things that you can do there where, you know, you could have a character sacrifice themselves to reveal the information to a third character. And then that character can go off and then they can, come back and tackle the situation and we can have all of these like tangled webs that we love so much in our wuxia stories so definitely something to think about and then um jared wraps up by saying this show has been a great listen and has got me thinking a lot more about the elements that go into the genre and how they relate to elements used in other genres and so yeah thanks for listening jared and i'm really glad you're getting something out of it we uh we're trying to say intelligent things here. <laughs> and it's, it's good to know that somebody's getting something out of it. <laughs> We're at least provoking intelligent responses. So yeah. <laughs> we can take credit for how smart Jared and Todd and all of the rest of you are. I think that's, I think that's what we can take away from that. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to fight us on it, uh, all you have to do is tell us exactly what you want to sacrifice first, and then we can determine what the, the field of battle will look like. Oh, man, I want to move that to the end of the show. It was so good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, we'll think about it. We might come back to it. We've got more comments to go through. And then finally, for this round of comments, we have Ryan Swan, who wrote in uh, talking about two separate things. First, he talked about the distinction between iconic versus narrative characters or scenes. Uh, to To use his example, he paints Batman as an iconic character who doesn't really change it. He doesn't really change. Regardless of the circumstance, Batman is always Batman Um, versus a narrative character that changes from their origin as the story progresses. He says, perhaps characters can express their greatest power when acting in an iconic way, such as using drunken boxing while drunk, but can only gain power or change when acting in a narrative way. This would give additional incentive not to escalate combats as the high end fights don't allow for incremental improvement. And I think that's pretty uh that's pretty deft reasoning right there that's that's cool stuff this idea that you can behave iconically and reach the height of your power but if you want to grow or change a situation then you have to be behaving narratively instead right i'm going to i'm going to massage a word here and i'm going to swap out narrative for dramatic mm, yeah so we can have iconic versus dramatic characters because i i get what ryan's saying and i think i think he's on point. Mm -hmm. I think what we see a lot in these stories, and I think we see it with Crouch Tiger, Hidden Dragon, is that we see a bunch of iconic characters come together. And then once the story starts, then they become dramatic characters. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because, because they've entered a situation that makes their, uh, that challenges their iconic nature Mm -hmm. and that they can't use their iconic nature to get out of the situation. Yeah. Limu Bai is, a great example. Uh, he's basically Superman and then yeah. the dramatic circumstances make him grow and change. He can't just Superman his way out of the problem. Mm-hmm. He can't Superman his way out of being in love with, with Shulian. Mm-hmm. 
So that's that's what creates that that extra oomph. I think I think iconic characters tend to be large in scale, like Batman or Conan or Sherlock Holmes, right? They always solve their problems. Like Conan solves his problems by being more Conan, mm-hmm. right? And <laughs> I think that works in the background for some of these characters. Lee Mubai can achieve this by being Lee Mubai, right? Until he enters this story, and then all of a sudden he has to take that that dramatic shift. That's what creates the the, the power and the story. Mm-hmm. And I think adding in that switching back between iconic and dramatic in terms of like their scale is a really interesting thing that, that we should definitely dig into. I think it's a really smart idea. It's often unsatisfying to watch an iconic character be dramatic, Mm -hmm. Um, except in Wuxia movies. I think, I think they're really, they're really doing a thing that is that Western media finds really challenging to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You see that a lot with, with TV shows that like go on for a long time and they're like, Oh, we can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Except that MacGyver ran for like seven seasons and that guy just did the same thing every week and it was great. I watched <laughs> it all the time. So like it works. Yeah. Um, but if it all of a sudden had had a dramatic arc slapped on top of it, it would feel not great. Right. The Wuxia's square in a circle that I didn't realize that it was doing, and I love it even more now. Yeah, right. It's pretty cool stuff. I, I think, well, so I loved Wuxia long before we started this podcast, but even though we're ostensibly the people who are generating the thoughts about this thing, uh, I'm still learning so much more than I knew before we started this. You know, uh, the depth of my knowledge about this, I think, is increasing a lot, and I really like it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and a lot of it comes from smart people telling us smart things. Yeah. So thank you. Us, smart making people. us smarter. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of those smart people, yeah, Ryan's got the one more thing he says. Uh, he says, secondly, I recall the Misdirected Mark podcast discussing Swords Without Master, specifically in that there is a mechanic that doesn't allow the death or destruction of anything with a name without the player's approval first. And uh, I know, Eric, you had talked about Swords Without Master in a previous uh, Stealing as Art section. Yeah, I mean, this is another great thing. In Swords Without Master, the the GM has has sort of a limited amount of authority. They can escalate the action and the violence up to the point where the the death or permanent change of something that a character has named, whether it's... Just, it's, so it's their own character, if they have a, an iconic weapon, if they have other characters that are that they have a relationship with, right? Like I can't I can't take your lover and throw them into pool, a pool of lava mm-hmm. without you consenting to that. And so what it does is, especially in phases where where danger and death is on the line, it creates this really great escalation where the the GM just keeps escalating and escalating until the player rolls the dice and decides how they're going to change the situation. Mm-hmm. But the GM can can go, okay, I'm I'm getting right up onto that line where I'm going to I'm going to kill you or I'm going to I'm going to destroy something that you have named that you have ownership over. And the it's it's more of an like a cons- consent mechanic mm. uh, than anything else. And what it what it does is that it, it lets you go big and it lets you dare the game master to go big cool and yeah and it lets the players go big and so it's a really uh exciting 
way of doing it because like, it seems like, Oh, well I can't kill you unless you let me kill you. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't necessarily work in dungeons and dragons. Right. Um, but what it does in swords of that master is, is create this heightened scale that these, these Conan like characters have. And they, you're like, it was like what you were talking about last time. Like, Oh, you think that's a 10? Well, pretend that's a five and now give me a 10. Yeah. I and like that. that. That's what that allows. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. It's a, it's a, there's, this could just be the swords of that master cast. And I could just talk about that game and all of the <laughs> things that it does. Um, and, you know, in some ways I'm sort of like, mm, you know, the perfect Wushan game kind of already exists. Um, and it's swords of that master. But I say that about a lot of different genres. Sure. So it's, uh, it's really worth checking out. It's also four bucks. So you should definitely uh, go buy it. Um, and while we're talking about you going and buying things, you should buy Todd Crapper's uh, High Plane Samurai. You know, yeah, for, I, uh, for I'm people's stuff. I missed out on the Kickstarter, but I am very excited to scoop that up sometime fairly soon. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, I think we've reached the end of our comments here. We have indeed. So since we've reached the end of the comments and we are now telling you to go and buy things. I think it must be time to be the end of the show. I think you're right. I, I, I knew this was going right. to be a long one. Yeah, but, but we made it through. <laughs> we did it. We made it through. Congratulations, Eric. <laughs> Congratulations, Eli. I was excited and nervous to talk about it. Me and too. I, I think we did a more than passable job. Uh, we yeah. will see what the edit comes out of. Yeah, yeah we'll find out. Yeah. So, Eric, where can people find you? So you can find me on the internet at my website, dogpoweredvehicle.com, where you can find uh, tabletop games for the unserious. You can find me on Twitter at Eric M. Farmer. Uh, you can find me on Google Plus, uh, Eric Farmer there. Uh, I, the easiest place to find me is in the Misdirected Market community. Now you can find me on Facebook if you wanted to, but those are the places that I am available Eli, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on my website, mythicgazetteer.com, your guide to worlds that could be. Uh, or you can find me on Twitter at ZapDynamic or on Google Plus or Facebook. This next episode, then, we're going to be discussing Western Wuxia, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we've got a very special guest coming up. Indeed we do. P.K. Sullivan himself, the inestimable, is going to be joining us for a discussion of John Wick and The Matrix. Uh, P.K. stands for Peacock King, right? That's, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. He is a wuxia hero of the highest scale. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And remember to go make your kung fu stronger. John Who Hustle is being released on Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.